Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad. We are husband and wife and partners in crime, here to give you your weekly healthy portion of true crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. So glad to be back in this booth after a much-needed break. My grandma of 87 years passed away, so we got the opportunity to spend some much-needed extra time with family, which was really nice. Yeah, and honestly, it was a good recharge. Yeah. So, we're back. And we're so happy that you could join us for our very first episode of 2024. So brace yourself as we embark on this true crime journey that includes the constant pursuit for justice. As always, listener discretion is advised. So this story will be split up into two parts because there's so much to this story. So if you're currently somewhere cold, we are going to a much warmer place, to Newport Beach, California, which I've never been there, but I hear that it's one of the best places to go whale watching. Definitely on the bucket list. Now, Newport Beach is a coastal town located in Southern California. Popular shows like The O.C. and Arrested Development were filmed in this area. I love that show. Isn't that cool? Yep. So in Newport Beach, on a hot July day, back on July 6th of 1997, around noon, the married couple Peggy and Eric Beckler rented a boat to celebrate their fifth wedding anniversary. I imagine this would be a very exciting yet relaxing experience as they took this romantic journey to celebrate their life together. Sounds like a nice time. Yeah. You should do that, Ricky. Set that up. I want to go too, so okay. Now, about four hours into this boat rental, Eric decided to take the boogie board out for a spin. He had tethered the boogie board to the boat, and Peggy drove him around. This is where a tragic accident happened. Apparently, they hit a hard wave, and Peggy fell overboard. And at this time, the boat was still on the move. It was going around in circles while Eric is hanging onto the boogie board. Eric started to yell, which caught the attention of another group on a boat, who luckily was nearby named the Green Machine, driven by Gary Green. And he makes no hesitation to drive by the shouting man being pulled by an uncontrollable boat. You would have to jump onto the boat and, like, turn it off because it's unmanned at this point, right? Yeah. That's crazy. And when he approaches, Eric explains what happened. His wife, Peggy, had drowned in an accident. So Gary Green, he called the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard were on their way. They waited for around 40 minutes. And during that time, Eric sat, waiting in silence until they showed up. That's strange. Why wasn't he looking for her or, like, making any attempt to find her? Seems weird. I mean, your wife of five years like, drowned. Yeah, you'd be at least in the water looking for her. He's just like, well, she's dead. So weird. And once the Coast Guard shows up, he gives the same explanation. Looking at this picture from the very start, there were red flags almost immediately. So Peggy's disappearance naturally turned into a homicide investigation. Yeah, for sure. 
Now, just to note before we talk more about the details surrounding the death of Peggy, we wanted to point out first that the only witness investigators were able to talk with was Eric. So a lot of the things that Eric says about Peggy have come off as biased. As you will notice, Eric tends to paint Peggy as a non-likable character. So keep this in mind. Plus, if Peggy was, you know, talking about him, she'd probably have some bad things to say, too. Right. There's always two sides of the story. Well, we will get into the number of suspicions and details as we continue with this episode. With that being said, there's a lot of information with this case. So this is going to be a long one, and we're going to split this up into two different parts. This is going to be part one, and then we're finishing the story up with part two. All right, let's jump in. Again. (laughs) Let's dive in this time. Now, once Peggy's family heard the tragic news about her drowning, it was unbelievable. There was just no way Peggy could have drowned because Peggy was a champion swimmer. She was extremely athletic, even as a child. And during her experience at Dexter High School, she would be a standout athlete. She even participated in an annual triathlon in her hometown of Dexter beginning in her early 20s and continued to participate in them until her death, and even won a few times. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not impossible, but it's highly unlikely that she drowned. Exactly. And that's what her family believed. Like, how? I mean, she was a champion swimmer. So Peggy Jan Marshall was born in Roswell, New Mexico on July 2nd, 1959. She was the fourth child in a family of five. And then Peggy was raised, for the most part, in Dexter, New Mexico. Her father worked on a farm. Roswell has some pretty cool, like, UFO facts about it. Yeah, there's like a UFO that crashed or yeah. something back I, in the I 40s. don't remember all of the details, but I want to go there because they have, like, UFO-themed restaurants and attractions and things like that. It would be really fun. That would be so awesome. Put it on the list, Ricky. All right. So like we said, Peggy, she had this strong and determined personality. At the age of 38 years old, she was still very active, like we said, doing triathlons, which is amazing. Triathlon. That's like running, biking, and swimming, right? Yeah, it takes extreme dedication. Never done it, but I hear that it's like hours of training. I don't think I could ever do it. Like I get a no. I get a cramp just thinking about being in water. Just thinking about it. I would need like pizza breaks and like drink breaks. And then you wouldn't be able to swim for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, cuz you don't want to get a cramp. We should do it. Let's start 2024 off new year new me. Eh, I don't know about that. We'll have to start out slow. Maybe we'll get to that point eventually. Maybe we'll just go swimming once. Now, just as she was a dedicated athlete, after Peggy graduated from high school, she went on to study physical therapy at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And things seemed to really fall into place. Hard work pays off. She landed a job as a physical therapist in Dexter after college, rehabilitating patients through a healthcare company. So again, very driven and dedicated. And I guess you could say Peggy outgrew Dexter. She had bigger and better plans than her hometown. And so Peggy packed her bags and she made California her home in 1988. 
She was living it up, enjoying the nice weather and the athletic and outdoor lifestyle. It was perfect for her, and she kept her job as a physical therapist. And on Easter Day in 1991, she was enjoying herself playing a little competitive volleyball on the beach when Peggy, who was 31 at the time, met Eric Beckler, who was 23. And things seemed to fall right into place. I have no doubt that she kicked his butt in that game of volleyball, though. Oh, for sure. Eric Beckler, he was a California native, and he had a pretty normal upbringing, graduating from Long Beach Poly High School, and was also athletic himself. He gave the Marine Corps a try, but he dropped out during his freshman year, and he put the blame on culture, shock, and homesickness. And so after that experience, he moved to Long Beach with his mother, and he enrolled in UC Irvine, which he later earned a bachelor's degree in history. And he kept active playing some beach volleyball, which is around the same time that he met Peggy. So like we said, the two connected like two puzzle pieces. And a year later, Peggy and Eric married in 1992. And they actually had three separate ceremonies. It's elaborate. Yeah, they must have been really excited because they were in love and they were just at an all-time high. Once they got married in court, once on the beach in front of friends and family, and once in a German castle. And they enjoyed each other for four years and then they started to have children, a total of three they would eventually have. They came off as a very happy couple and a very loving family, although some would say that they weren't the type of couple to show extreme affection in public. But They were a solid couple who were quite wealthy when their family business called Jerry Care Rehabilitation in June of 1992 took off. And Peggy, she was naturally a go-getter. This was something that she had always wanted. Peggy became president of the company and Eric was the vice president. Now later, there were some arguments that Eric and Peggy were equal partners in their marriage and their business, but Peggy's family claimed that everyone knew that Jerry Care was Peggy's company. Peggy oversaw day-to-day operations as a president. She conducted meetings. She hired employees and was in charge of the company's billing. The company became profitable, raking in around $6 million in revenue each year. Which, back in the day, in the 90s, that was a lot of money. That's a lot of money today. Many believed that the reason the business was so successful was due to the questionable billing practices that occurred, especially when it came to Medicare. Employees expressed their thoughts that the more Peggy learned about the system and how it worked and didn't work, the more she took advantage of it, and Jerry Care became more fortunate. One of our employees who was working in billing at the time strongly suggested that the billing methods should be changed. However, that person was fired. The Becklers were unstoppable in living it up in their very luxurious lifestyle. According to Los Angeles Times, they paid $795,000 for a home that had a rooftop deck with a panoramic view of Lido Isle, Newport Bay, and the Pacific Ocean. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, it seems like it's always been this tradition that we need to change ourselves and set these resolutions. But I think it's time that we start celebrating the accomplishments that we've made. 2023 was a challenging year, but that just makes us stronger for whatever challenges come next. 
Personal growth and self-care are ongoing commitments for me. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch that extreme resolution and drive towards real-life improvements. And whatever goal you may have, therapy can be a very helpful tool in getting to where you desire to be. As for me, therapy keeps me on track to accomplish goals like managing my time and organizing the overwhelm that can add up. Through therapy, I am able to gain a deeper understanding of myself, identify my strengths, and develop strategies to overcome challenges. The guidance and support provided by a therapist can help individuals set realistic and achievable goals, develop healthy habits, and make positive changes in your life. Whether it's improving work-life balance, increasing organizational skills, or addressing any other personal goal, therapy serves as a valuable resource for personal growth and self-improvement. So therapy isn't just for someone who has experienced extreme trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and very busy schedule friendly. So if you're someone who feels like there's just not enough time in my day that I can even think about doing therapy, there's a place for you at BetterHelp. And you start by simply filling out a brief questionnaire so that you can be matched with a licensed therapist. And if you feel the need, you can easily switch therapists at any time for no additional cost. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash crime salad today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crime salad. So this is like the 90s. So in today's market, that's probably closer to like two to three million and maybe more to like supply demand. That area is really popular. Right. Now, this house was turned into the ultimate hosting house. Their basement was transformed into basically a dancing club room. They also were owners of two Porsches and a sport utility vehicle. And they owned lots of designer clothing and they worked out every day to keep their bodies in tip-top physical condition. I mean, they were living that California lifestyle for sure. Oh, yeah. I feel like they were like that couple. Mm -hmm. And at the peak of the business's success, employees who worked at Jerry Care were gifted an annual, all-expenses-paid ski trip to Big Bear Ski Resort. I mean, all I got was a turkey check for my employer. What's a turkey check? It was a check for turkey. Oh, yeah. (laughs) One free turkey. Employees were invited to these elaborate parties that were held at the Beckler's home. At the door, they were greeted with what was described as gypsies, and the house would be beautifully decorated in gold. They hired servers dressed in Middle Eastern traditional clothing who would serve a number of different international dishes, including Moroccan and North African fare. This was all described in a journal entry that Peggy wrote. So with all of these lavish experiences provided by the Becklers, it tended to come off as a way for them to flaunt their wealth rather than a time for their employees to bond or enjoy themselves. And this was according to some of the employees at Jerry Care. It was also said that some strange things would be going down at these parties, like the party room stairs were lined with mirrors so that men could look up women's skirts. So I'm going to assume they didn't invite the HR department? Probably not. Now, Eric, he was known to drink quite heavily at these parties. One time, he jumped onto a visitor's car and crashed through the sunroof. 
And as for Peggy, and police would say that initially they thought Peggy was the sweetest, most caring boss ever. She appeared to be willing to go to any lengths for her employees. Honestly, she probably was at the beginning and then just got corrupted by money. Greed. Yeah. Like, for example, one of her physical therapists explained that they broke their leg and they were unable to work. So Peggy insisted on the employee moving into her guest house where she would be able to live rent-free, which is a really, really nice thing to do for your employee. Like, that's over the top, I feel. Mm -hmm. And the employee accepted Peggy's offer, feeling extremely grateful. However, the employee quickly discovered that nothing from Peggy was ever free. According to the employee, Peggy expected her to run errands for her, come to the office and babysit for her, pick up the children, tutor employees who were taking exams in the near future, and more, in exchange for the free stay. Yeah, doesn't sound free. So there is a price to pay for the... Hospitality. Hospitality. Now, there came a point in the Becklers' marriage when it became clear in the workplace that their relationship was becoming difficult. Some speculated maybe it was the combination of them continuously having to work with each other and then also live together. Some noticed that Peggy liked to put Eric in his place, which would cause arguments that would get heated behind closed doors. Many of the employees thought that Eric was losing his role at Jerry Care. There were staff members who overheard Peggy commenting on who he could be friends with and what he could do and when he could play volleyball, which led Eric to pull away. And around this time, Eric confided in one of his closest friends, Kobe, that he was having marital problems because Peggy was selfish, controlling, and manipulative. And he didn't want to be near her any longer. But on the other side of things, it seemed that there was a lot of money problems that were causing a lot of disagreements and arguments between the Becklers. And it came to the point where Peggy wanted to keep her money separate from Eric's money. And when she gave Eric money, she referred to it as a loan. And maybe this is because Peggy felt like Eric wasn't being responsible with their money For instance, on one occasion, Peggy's cousin Kevin testified that he once overheard an argument between Peggy and Eric after Eric purchased $300 sunglasses. Peggy became irritated and questioned him about this purchase. And he would say, you don't want me to hurt my eyes, do you? All in all, they were having money problems. And these fights that they would have would be heard by neighbors who also reported that Eric and Peggy fought frequently and heatedly. According to one neighbor, Peggy was crying hysterically after repeatedly asking Eric the same question in a loud voice. And as time went on, things got much worse. In the summer of 1996, the same year that Peggy had her third and last pregnancy with Eric's child, the police were called to the Beckler's home on two occasions due to arguments. Around the same time, Eric told his friend Kobe, I can't stand it any longer. I need to get out of here, away from her. Kobe and his wife, Tammy, talked to Eric about divorcing Peggy. But Eric, he refused, saying that he would lose all of the money and also the kids. Peggy threatened to divorce him and move with the children to New Mexico to live with family. Eric was concerned that if Peggy did this, he would never see his children again. So he came up with a plan, and that was to make Peggy seem as an unfit mother by videotaping her using cocaine in order to gain custody of their children in a divorce. Blackmail. 
And while this was happening, Eric was trying to get lucky at the strip club around July of 1996, while they were having marital problems and financial challenges. So like we said, the finances were becoming the main challenge in their relationship, and it was more of a problem when they both weren't willing to make any lifestyle adjustments. At this time, much of the company's money went towards two mortgages on their house, a new Porsche, recent expensive trips, including one to Morocco, and other expenses like strip club money for Eric. So they were in this state of not wanting to give up their luxurious lifestyle, but the funds were naturally depleting. The company was running out of funds, which caused the employees to start to notice when their retirement funds weren't getting any contributions. And when this started happening, the employees reported the Becklers to the IRS, who ordered them to repay the funds. Peggy tried other ways to save money by lowering the pay of her employees, but according to Eric, he didn't want to do that. So it came down to making an important business decision. Eric and Peggy decided to sell the company. Jerry Care sold for $1.5 million in August of 1996. However, the two stayed on as employees and managers, earning a combined annual salary of $250,000, which is approximately $440,000 today. Well, that shows you just how much of a hit they actually were taking financially because they were making $6 million a year, and then they sold the company for $1.5 million. Like, wow. Yeah, significantly less than what they were earning. But as a manager, $250,000, I mean, still good, but definitely not comparable to what they were making. Yeah, it's not the lifestyle they were living. Right. So the company who bought them was called American Retirement Villas, or ARV, And they were drawn to the financial success that their company was making. But soon they realized that the reason for that was because of medical fraud. They had no idea that this was happening before they bought the company, or else they probably wouldn't have bought it. Multiple employees then came forward and told this new company about what happened to their paychecks, how the Becklers spent the company funds, and other details. And once they looked into the past billing, they found that they were committing fraud. And so both Eric and Peggy were fired in March of 1997, which resulted in Peggy losing her license. And I'm sure the books were probably like physical books back then, too. Right. So it's not like you would just look at an Excel sheet and like be able to see. Yeah, I'm sure this was pretty common back in the 90s, because like you said, how could you really, really keep track? Cooking the books. That's what that probably comes from, huh? And the new company, ARV, they were later forced to pay $1.6 million as a result of the Beckler's Medicare fraud. So now that they were fired from their former business and unable to continue to work as physical therapists, the Becklers were forced to use their savings to pay their mortgage and their bills. And because no funds were coming in, they eventually bounced checks. While all this was happening, Eric and Peggy eventually obtained matching $2.6 million worth of life insurance policies. Red flag. And Eric frequently called his insurance agent to inquire about Peggy's life insurance. So at this point in their relationship, they lost their jobs, and now they're being investigated for this financial fraud, which is really intense. This put stress on their already strained marriage. According to Peggy's friend Glenda, Peggy cried about her marriage every time Glenda saw her. 
Eric, he appeared to be depressed, and so a friend bought him a book titled Divorce for Dummies. And after playing volleyball one day, Eric asked his good friend Kobe a perplexing question. What do you think about the possibility of killing my wife? As shocking as that question would be, Kobe asked him if things had really gotten that bad, to which Eric replied, yes. And he elaborated. Eric was considering taking Peggy out to sea and dumping her body in the ocean, possibly in a barrel. Kobe asked Eric if he could play the distraught and bereaved husband who just lost his wife, to which Eric replied, yes, of course I could. However, they never really talked about this again, and Kobe was most likely thinking maybe he was just angry and really irritated with the marriage. He probably wouldn't actually do this. And so that brings us to the fateful day, July 6th, 1997. Eric, who was 29 at the time, told Peggy, who was 38, that he had planned a surprise for their fifth wedding anniversary. Eric wanted to set up this surprise for Peggy. He explained that she loved to give people surprises, and so he wanted to do something special for her, which is really sick, realizing when he put together this really disgusting surprise. He had called ahead to rent this boat that was named Sea Swirl, and they planned to take out the 19-foot speedboat along the coast of Newport Beach, California, enjoying the summer sun and the ocean's calm water, maybe seeing a couple whales, celebrating their five years of marriage together. However, during this same boat outing was when Gary Green, the captain of the Green Machine, was taking his family and friends out as well. It can be difficult to find a quick yet healthy snack, especially since the majority of our options are so high in sugar or salt. And resisting that temptation becomes even more challenging when these snacks are sitting right in front of us. So why not consider other delicious snack choices that are both good for us and easy to manage? Let's start 2024 off with less sugar and smarter snack choices. Whether at the gym, on the go, or in between snacks, Mosh Protein Bars are the smart snack to keep your brain and body fit, fueled, and feeling good. With the delicious variety of six flavors, each Mosh Bar includes 12 grams of protein and is made with ingredients that support brain health, like ashwagandha, lion's mane, collagen, and omega-3s. With just 160 calories and a mere one gram of sugar, Mosh Protein Bars are the perfect guilt-free snack that your brain and body will be craving. And think about it, our brain is our number one tool, which is why Mosh Protein Bars were mindfully formulated by some of the top neuroscientists and functional nutritionists. Founded by Patrick Schwarzenegger and Maria Shiver, Mosh is a mission-driven brain health and wellness company that donates a portion of all proceeds to support women's brain research through the women's Alzheimer's movement at Cleveland Clinic. We always keep mosh on hand. I have some in the diaper bag, some in the car, and we've actually replaced all of our sweets in our home with mosh. We normally kept sugary cookies and cakes and chips, 
Mosh is our family's go-to snack. So when we're on the go, going to a number of weekly sporting events or family outings, we fuel up with Mosh. It provides us with a healthy and convenient option that satisfies our sweet cravings. So I would like to share that with you. So don't settle for a mediocre snack when you can nourish your body and mind with the fuel that it needs to succeed. So whether you're at the gym, on the go, or just living your best life, Mosh Protein Bars will keep your brain and body fit, fueled, and feeling good. Head to moshlife.com slash crime salad to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack, which includes all six mouthwatering flavors. M O S H L I F E dot com slash crime salad. Now, just to point out, this day was a great day for a boat ride. There were clear skies. The ocean water was nice and calm. There was about one to three foot swell and a light chop. No big waves. Which is another reason that it makes it kind of hard to believe that she drowned. Right? It was in the late afternoon around 3.30 p.m. when Green noticed a man on a boogie board being pulled by a boat yelling in the distance. He was located about four miles off the coast. The boat was going around in circles at a high speed. And as this boat approached this man, Green could hear him yell, My wife! My wife! My wife! The man on the boogie board appeared distressed and shocked. Green overheard him yelling that his wife had fallen overboard. Green tossed the man a life jacket and attempted to calm him down. And he quickly gave the Coast Guard a call. And like we said, when Eric finally was safe in Mr. Green's boat, he held onto the boogie board and he stared straight ahead, not talking to anyone, not doing anything. And he sat there in silence for about 40 to 45 minutes, waiting for the Coast Guard to arrive. Yeah, which is suspicious. Yeah, I mean, the shock, but also like... That's 40 minutes that you could have been like helping or looking or doing something. Right. Deputies from the Orange County Sheriff's Office responded to the Green Machine's distress call. They arrived on the scene and brought Eric onto their ship. The man identified himself as Eric Beckler to the deputies. Eric, who sat waiting in silence for around 40 minutes, woke up from his silence when they arrived. He shouted, my wife, my wife, she fell overboard, she fell overboard, I can't find her. Eric explained that he and his wife, Peggy, had rented the boat to celebrate their fifth wedding anniversary. They sipped margaritas, snacked, and sunbathed before he rode the boogie board while his wife drove the boat back to shore. He told deputies that he was on the boogie board when he hit a wave and went under the water. And when he came back up, his wife was gone. He mentioned she wasn't wearing a life jacket and had vanished into the thousand foot deep water. And he couldn't catch up to the boat because it was going around in circles. He last saw his wife sitting on the top of the back part of the driver's seat. Officers summoned emergency vessels and searched the surrounding area for about two hours under Coast Guard supervision. They searched using several boats and a helicopter. 
but nothing came up. Eric appeared to be sobbing at times during the search, but he did not appear to show any tears. Eric asked several times if deputies had checked the shore because maybe she swam to shore. Because, you know, Peggy was a triathlete and a fantastic swimmer, and the ocean conditions had been relatively calm. Peggy was not discovered during the search. Even still to this day, she has never been found. The officers were able to bring the out-of-control boat to a stop. Looking at the boat itself, there weren't any wrappers or chips or crumbs on the deck of the boat. While others continued their search, officers returned to shore, carrying Eric and his rental boat. Within Eric's earshot, officers talked about the media possibly being present on the dock when they returned. Eric, he was quiet on the trip back to shore. But upon disembarking and seeing the media, he became very upset. He sobbed and heaved, and officers had to assist him in walking up the ramp. Eric, he calmed down, and he was able to walk on his own once inside the sheriff's office where there was no members of the media. Sounds like a good actor. He's able to, like, turn it on and off and scene. Yes, he was able to use his emotions as needed. The Coast Guard didn't buy Eric's story right off the bat. The water had been so calm that day, it seemed very unlikely a wave had knocked Peggy out of the boat. And even if there was a wave, Peggy was a strong swimmer. So it was unlikely that she would have drowned right away. I mean, maybe if she got knocked out, like maybe being hit on the head or something would cause her to not be able to swim or like keep herself above water. Yeah, but hit by what? Like a bird? The boat? I mean, if you're really trying to like stretch his theory on like what happened, like maybe she hit her head and like... Like slipped. Like she was sitting on top of the seat, so like slipped, fell, hit her head on yeah. something. Now the Coast Guard, they were questioning, well, if she fell in the water, why hadn't her body floated to the surface? With Eric's story not really making any sense and his strange behavior of the on and off switch with his emotions... They were really suspicious of him. And although they were suspicious, they were missing solid evidence that Peggy's death was anything other than a tragic accident. And so the Coast Guard would be forced to continue their investigation. Meanwhile, the Coast Guard warned the public about the dangers of drinking and not wearing a life jacket because the accident was not completely rolled out. And plus, this was an open investigation. Yeah, so they kind of had to just treat it that way at first. Right. And although we already mentioned this, when Peggy's parents found out about the accident of their daughter drowning, they didn't believe it. And Peggy's mother screamed, that son of a bitch killed her. She knew right then and there what happened. It's that mother's intuition. I actually see that a lot in these cases. This prompted an investigation into Eric. On July 7th, Coast Guard special agents went to Eric's house to speak with him. Eric shared his story starting from the beginning. They were on their way to Catalina Island, but they had to turn around after about 15 or 20 minutes because it was too hazy. He claimed that Peggy was driving the boat and pulling him along on the boogie board when Eric claimed that a large wave knocked him off his board and he could not see Peggy in the boat. Peggy, according to Eric, had been sitting on top of the seat which was his story with the Coast Guard in the first place. Right. Sticking to his original story. Right. 
While speaking, Eric appeared to be crying, but the agents saw no tears. Crocodile tears. The agents then proceeded to inspect the boat, and they noticed that the boat was spotless, with no visible trash or dirt. The agents discovered one towel in front of the motor, two duffel bags, a cooler half-filled with margarita mix, a pair of sunglasses on a seat, and a backpack. The large duffel bag only held a magazine, and the other duffel bag held a variety of items, such as chips and other snacks, toiletries, and clothes. Right. So, obviously, those bags were probably used for something other than just magazines. There's just one magazine in the duffel bag. So, like, why bring a duffel bag with one magazine? It's a very cherished magazine. Something else had to have been in there. For sure. Now, Eric's backpack contained lubricant, black plastic bags, and a vibrator. The agents also discovered a 44-foot, 8-inch rope. The agents discovered no obvious signs of blood on the boat or any blood on the clothing recovered from it. Now, later that day, Coast Guard special agents called up Eric and said, hey, we're coming over just to let you know. We'll be there in a few minutes. And when they showed up, Eric was curled up in a fetal position on the couch. He appeared to be crying again, but the agents saw no tears. When the agents left, a man and a woman, which I'm thinking could have been possibly Kobe and Tammy, arrived at the house. While the agents were leaving, they noticed Eric standing up, smiling, and laughing with the couple. Quite the opposite of the fetal position distraught husband, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it seems like his behavior definitely changed Like after they left. And I wonder what his friend was feeling after all this, because Kobe was the one friend who Eric went to hinting that he wanted to kill his wife and dump her in the ocean. Oh, he did. Mm -hmm. So at this point, like, it has to be clicking. He confessed to him that he had these feelings. He wanted to get rid of his wife. He even stated that he would want to do, like, a drowning, wasn't it? And then Kobe said, could you even pull off like the distraught husband. Yeah, and the emotions and the acting and all of that Seems stuff. Seems so weird. And you think Kobe would just go to the police like, hey. And at this point, the investigators had some time to examine the boat and his belongings a bit closer. A crime scene investigator discovered several small drops of blood near the right portion of the boat on July 8th. And that same day, Eric was being interviewed at the police station by Coast Guard special agents. And Eric, he went through the same similar story that we mentioned before. Eric informed them that he and Peggy had rented the boat to celebrate their anniversary late. And they loaded their belongings onto the boat around noon. And they traveled to another dock to retrieve the boogie board and a bag containing a tow rope. Then they exited the channel and entered the open ocean. They stopped after about 15 to 20 minutes to drink margaritas, eat snacks, and sunbathe. And on the boat, they had sex. And Eric, he decided to ride his boogie board while they returned to shore around 2 o'clock p.m. Eric couldn't see Peggy through the spray. Eric slipped off the boogie board, and when he came to, the boat was starting to turn and Peggy was nowhere to be found. He attempted but failed to reach the boat. After about 15 to 30 minutes, another boat arrived, Gary Green on his green machine. So we've gone over the story a few times now. It seems like he's told, you know, different detectives pretty much the same story. Did he ever, you know, mess it up or 
or just like minor discrepancies? Yeah, from what we're looking at, I mean, it seems like he kept on the same page. One thing that I'm noticing is the boogie board. Like he keeps changing up, like he slipped off the boogie board or he fell off the boogie board or like he went under and then came back up. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, even though it's not, like, a big deal, it's still, like, a little slight change as to, like, what happened on the boogie board because yeah, it probably never even happened. Well, it definitely didn't happen. Yeah. Now, Peggy's memorial, it was held on the beach atop a rocky bluff, which is kind of like a mountain, but more of, like... Like a cliff. Like the Lion King, you know? But over a body of water or yeah. something, right? There were approximately 100 people present. And according to the Los Angeles Times, a flutist performed while Eric and his family tossed rose petals into the sea. And according to Peggy's father, the memorial was a touching and fitting goodbye for a woman who so loved the outdoors, especially the ocean. And according to the Associated Press, Eric cradled his nine-month-old daughter while fighting back tears at Peggy's memorial. Those acting skills coming in handy again. Yeah, I mean, this was his chance to shine. Yeah. Because... Well, he told his friend that he could do it. And there's so many eyes looking at him thinking... And Kobe has to be looking at him, too, like, dang, he's doing it. Dang. So the Coast Guard, they decided to do what they called sea trials in the ocean to determine if Peggy had accidentally fallen off the boat, as Eric claimed. Of course, the sea trials could never completely replicate what occurred on July 6th, even if Eric's story was true. Investigators had no idea where Peggy was seated while driving the boat, how she maneuvered the steering wheel, or what throttle level that she was using. However, the sea trials were carried out to account for those variables. Yeah, I I get the importance of doing it, but like you said, like there's millions of scenarios that could come out of that. Yeah, and... Like, whenever it's an accident, it's an accident, you know? So it's kind of hard to... Yeah. Well, it's like you can't replicate every single detail because you don't know what the details are. Right. Hey, Crime Salad listeners. It's Ashley here with Crime Salad. And we just want to take a moment here to give you another podcast to add to your list. It's called Women in Crime, and it's a true crime podcast told by real criminologists. Amy Schlossberg and co-host Megan Sachs are both criminologists who have spent their entire careers studying and teaching about crime. They both have firsthand experience working with offenders and professionals in the criminal justice system. Each episode, you'll hear a new female-focused case or topic deconstructed by experts. Amy and Megan cover cases involving females as offenders and as victims, but more often than not, These two are one in the same. They also highlight the heroines of our justice system, such as Kathleen Zellner and Barbara Ray Venter, and interview subjects of famous cases, including Amanda Knox, Denise Huskins, and Lorena Bobbitt. You'll hear the stories of these women paired with the science that tells you where it all began. Crime is different for women. Listen and learn why on Women and Crime. And you can listen to Women in Crime now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Women A-N-D Crime. So on July 9th, Coast Guard Special Agents Motley and Moore used the same boat that Eric had rented to conduct a series of maneuvers. They drove the boat out of Newport Harbor and drove several miles into the open sea in the mid-afternoon. The sea was calm in the similar way that the water was on July 6th. 
Agents Motley, who is six feet, four inches tall, approximately 250 pounds, and Moore, five feet tall, 110 to 115 pounds, drove the boat at all throttle levels while sitting or standing in every conceivable position from which the boat could be steered. They drove the boat in circles over its own wake, turning it right and turning it left, and they used both hands, they tried one hand, they tried no hands, and they tried one foot to steer. Except for one instance when Moore slipped back into a seat, the outcomes were consistent in each situation. Regardless of which way the boat was steered, how the boat was steered, the driver's position, or the throttle position, neither the driver nor the passenger lost their balance or gravitated towards the outside of the boat. Motley had difficulty reaching the steering wheel while sitting on the top of the back of the driver's seat, whereas Moore, who was five foot tall, couldn't reach it at all. So do we know how tall Peggy actually is? So Peggy's height was five foot five inches and she weighed 130 pounds. Okay, so she's kind of small. Yeah, so she would be similar to Moore, who was five foot tall. And like we said, Moore couldn't reach the steering wheel at all. And that's how Eric said that Peggy was sitting. So he was saying that Peggy was sitting on the back of the driver's seat. Like on the seat, reaching to the steering wheel. Yeah. So that kind of disproves it right there. I mean, considering like five inches, like I don't know if she could reach it with her foot, but who drives a boat like that? Like I've (laughs) never driven a boat with my foot. Mm -mm. It was determined that it was either difficult or impossible. Now, Ralph, the owner of the boat rental company, told the Los Angeles Times that he agreed with the Coast Guard that Eric's story was impossible and mentioned he's never had anything like this happen before. So what do you think of this, Ricky? Do you think that this was a complete waste of time or do you think maybe this was a good thing to do to just roll out some things? They did learn something. It guided them into a you know a certain direction, knowing that she couldn't reach the steering wheel when she was actually sitting up. But, I mean, there's so many different scenarios. For instance, I worked with self-driving cars, and we would have billions of hours in simulation testing for like something as simple as coming to an intersection. There's just so many scenarios that you would have to run through to get any type of real information. Right. So, I mean, did it guide them somewhere? Maybe. Did it actually do anything? Probably not. And that makes me think, too, they were drinking. Drinking and driving alone, I mean, that's... Yeah, impairment. You don't know, like, how much she had to drink or how much that had to do with the accident. Now, the Coast Guard agents, they recommended that this investigation be turned over to the Orange County Police, stating that, based on the sea trials with the vessel... It remains very unlikely that Peggy Beckler was ejected from the vessel never to resurface. In other words, Peggy's death was not an accident and required a homicide investigation. And that is precisely what the Orange County Sheriffs did. Eric met with Orange County Sheriffs on July 12th to discuss the drowning incident and the Beckler's marriage. Eric stated that he could barely see Peggy driving the boat, but he believed that she was standing and watching him, and she may have sat on the edge of the seat. Eric thought Peggy was straddling the chair with her back to the water, inspecting the inside of the boat the last time he saw her. Eric claimed that he did not witness Peggy hitting her head. Eric also stated that after he and Peggy had sex, he noticed a couple splotches 
a pole or a couple drops of blood on the cushions in the front of the boat. Eric also reported seeing blood in the back of the boat and on the vibrator. He suspected Peggy was having her period. So at this point, it seems like he's just covering his tracks. Yeah. It's like, it's oh. like well, I did say she was sitting on the seat of the boat and driving, kind of like set this like we were just having a good time. But now it's like, oh, well, she was actually watching me or looking in the boat or something. Actually, I really don't know. So Yeah. And like the blood thing, I feel like that was like, crap, if they find any amounts of blood on the boat, I want to cover my tracks because I want it to be related to like us having sex. And I kind of want to like... Yeah, because obviously he knows if they find blood, it's going to be hers. So. Obviously, there's a lot of blood. Yeah. <laughs> now, when asked about the Beckler's marriage, Eric told the sheriffs that he and Peggy were so happy and had a very strong and wonderful marriage and would say, like anyone else, we had fights, but we never go to bed angry. They always discussed it. But the more authorities learned about Eric the more he appeared to be a likely suspect in Peggy's murder. He had multiple motives. Friends, co-workers, and neighbors all told investigators the opposite of what he said in his interview with police. They would say that the Beckler's marriage was unhappy and that they fought frequently. Just a year before, the police were called to the Beckler's home twice so his motive could possibly be that Eric was unhappy. And there were several witnesses that told investigators that Eric did not behave like a grieving husband. Glenda, a friend of Peggy's, said that he appeared solemn and upset around Peggy's family, but outside their presence, he appeared more jovial and happier than she had ever seen him. Kobe's wife, Tammy, stated that after the incident, Eric acted serious when Peggy's family was present, but smiled and pretended to be happy once they left. So we can probably assume here that Kobe didn't tell Tammy because... kind of thinking that. Yeah, she would have definitely... Spilled the beans. Spilled the beans. Eric only appeared to cry when there were other people around, according to the family babysitter. Investigators discovered that the Becklers were in financial trouble and had $2.6 million in life insurance policies. So this had to be a focus of the investigation at this point. Was it for money? And it seemed to be the case. On top of that, Eric and Peggy were also being investigated for fraud, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. And the investigation would most likely die with Peggy's death, the business investigation. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, on paper, they're not looking good. Right. And I mean, the fact that he told Kobe like a long time ago, it shows that he obviously was planning this for a long time. Of all the different ways to get rid of your wife, why drowning? And it's interesting that you say that because investigators discovered that Peggy's brother-in-law, who was on active duty for the Coast Guard, was in a boating accident while on a hunting trip in Alaska, and he was killed. However, his body was never discovered. So, not saying Eric has anything to do with his death or anything, but did this give him some kind of idea to do this to his wife, being that this was all seen as an apparent accident? There was no body. Yeah, like open shut case. Probably yeah. wasn't a lot to it. Everyone believed that he just drowned. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of the, the blueprint. Now, on July 14th, a forensic scientist examined the boat and they discovered blood beneath the right side seat cushion. And when the scientist sprayed luminol on the boat, the area of the front of the motor mount lit up. 
However, it wasn't possible to recover any DNA evidence from the blood that was found. And going by what Eric was saying about the vibrator, there wasn't any blood found on it. So that makes you think, well, she wasn't on her monthly cycle. Now, we've been wondering about this. And at this point, Kobe, he eventually went to the police and told them about what Eric had been telling him that he wanted to kill Peggy. So maybe he finally got up the courage. He finally was like, you know what? This is bugging me. It was probably eating him alive at that point. Yeah, I would say definitely. Back in March of 1997, Eric asked Kobe, what do you think about the possibility of killing my wife? Kobe was asked to wear a wire and speak with Eric by the police. And he agreed. But when Kobe asked Eric, if he had anything to do with Peggy's murder, Eric said no. Authorities lacked any sufficient evidence to charge Eric Beckler with Peggy's murder. Everything that they had was circumstantial, and they didn't have the evidence that they needed to lead to a murder conviction. And so they had to keep digging, hoping to find the proof they were looking for. And they wouldn't get a break until October of 1999. More on that later. So this is where part one ends. And in part two, we will be going over what that break exactly was. Eric, he actually meets this new somebody and it kind of snowballs from there. So stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing and be ready for part two. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.